the only true, real, everlasting God. We love you. We praise you. We honor you this morning. In your name. Good morning, fam. Good to see you. And I just want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers and men in here. And yeah, I just wanted to thank, I'm going to cry, great, um, thank all the men in here. Some of you are fathers, but all of you are fathering um, our children here. You're good husbands, you're men that pray and seek the Lord. And have empathy and share your feelings and, you know, against the toxic masculinity. You're not like woke men. You're men of, like, filled with the gospel. And that's better than being woke men in L.A. That's like the power of the gospel. And so thank you for loving our body and showing us that. And we just want to celebrate all of you in the ways Fathers, especially, you wake up really early and do things, but the ones who are fathering and loving and showing up and being brothers and friends and spouses and fiancés and boyfriends, thank you. And think, continue to seek Jesus. Y'all aren't perfect. Y'all, I like you all, but still keep um, depending on the Lord and all of that. Um, a couple announcements before we begin. Um, next Sunday is kind of, not kind of, it is, um, our last official gathering. We will be gathering in different forms throughout the summer. So we're going to do an end of a year celebration. Feel free to invite some neighbors and friends. We are going to have a little hot dog cart and there's going to be bounce houses and a few other surprises. So don't make lunch plans if you meal prep or whatever, you know, come and eat and celebrate, and we're going to have a great last time together. And then throughout, Brad has sent a few emails throughout the uh, month of July. There'll be other gatherings of the church because we do not go to church. We are the church. We're brothers and sisters, so we'll be meeting in different locations throughout Los Angeles. It's like Southern California. No, you don't have to drive very far. Um, throughout Los Angeles, just meeting as a church, fellowshipping, but like in a maybe more relaxed way where we don't have to like set up 50 chairs and take them down and set up walls and banners and tents. So I hope it is very restful and relaxing. Um, in the last announcement, as always, LA is a super transitory place and also People go through different seasons of life. So um, we're after our Sabbath month. I'm also looking for some new teachers for our fall. Um, we've had some people coming and going. We have people having babies, as you know, baby palooza here all the time. And so we are looking for some new passionate people who would love to serve. It's once a month with a teammate we have our lovely nursery toddlers over here, preschool and elementary outside. Um, some of the things, the teachers, I was just doing check-ins with some of the teachers today, and they were, or this week, and they're like, it brings me joy. They are so fun. I love getting to know the kids of our body. Um, like, they make me laugh. <laughs> 
So all of the materials are made for you and supplied. If you're a nursery, you don't have to change diapers, but it is once a month with a co-teacher, and we're looking for people that would love to serve in any of those um, classes. It's a huge, just as a parent, blessing for me to be able to, like, get time to worship the Lord and know that my kids are being loved on by amazing people, that they feel safe and, ha well, they cried when they went today, but you know, it, uh, after two minutes, they feel very safe and loved <laughs> because of the amazing teachers and presence that is here. They have their friends and their classes, and it's a true blessing, I think, to the body, um, to the parents, and to all of us, and that we're not, that church isn't just about what we get from it, but it's about what we can give to. And so that it's both and, right? That we can come and hear the word and worship and be filled up, but that we can give and serve and love all of the members of our body. So you can email me, text me, talk to me afterwards. I might reach out to some of you who have had my eye on. Just kidding. <laughs> but we would love to have um, a great teaching roster for August when we start back in the fall. So thank you. Thanks so much, Sarah. So good. Really appreciate you. Amen. And it will be fun next week. Now I know, I know what you listed off is going to be here next week. And I know, so I know more things. And then I'm like, oh, or is there a surprise that I don't know about? I'm like, oh, I shouldn't spill the beans to, to the people. Yeah. Well, uh, today... We are continuing our series on the festivals, on uh, these one chapter from the book of the Bible, uh, not one of those that you might typically spend uh, five weeks talking about, but Leviticus chapter 23. And today we're talking about a festival that's really the center of it is rest, it's enjoyment, it's simplicity. And I just want to say from the front, like, it's a very ironic Sunday for me to preach on this topic. I told me it all just a second ago. I've been running around like crazy and sweating, trying to, I've been very much the opposite of unhurried, which is this word, hurried. Uh, so it's, uh, it's hard. Uh, but I don't know, I just want to start by asking the question, have you ever heard of hurry sickness? Uh, it's this new thing. Uh, the other way they describe it is time urgency. Uh, it's when you rush from place to place, uh, when you squeeze every ounce of scheduling into a day, uh, and it all comes from when you try to accomplish in your life physically more than what you're physically able to do, where you have scheduled or have the, the need to accomplish 28 hours worth of stuff, but we're only physically given 24 uh, it's a counseling term that really isn't yet in psychiatric books or like the, the, the big thick book of disorders, but it's kind of growing towards that as just this chronic symptom of really uh, deeper anxiety. Uh, one of the primary pioneers of this field is a lady named Rosemary Sword, which is pretty cool. Sword is the last name. Uh, she describes it uh, in real life this way. Uh, and I believe she's actually talking about her own life. But she says, you might toss a load of laundry, uh, make sure that your old child is still working on their homework, stir the soup as it's about to boil over, remove something from a younger child's mouth, all while having a work-related conversation on the phone. She says, this is hurry sickness. Uh, 
Uh, signs of it, she says, are these. These are some of the symptoms of it. Feeling distracted constantly, like if in that scenario she goes on to describe the soup boiling over uh, and making a huge mess, uh, going through life that way. Another symptom uh, besides distraction is speeding, uh, both in your car, you know, they study how often people are speeding in their car, but also through conversations, through grocery shopping, through meals, speeding. Uh, she also says rushing through work tasks and household chores to the point where sometimes you have to do them over again because they weren't done correctly the first time. She says also frequently performing time calculations in your head to see whether you can fit in another task or another errand. Uh, feeling irritable when you face delays, that when something slows you down, it really makes you angry. Uh, constantly trying to find ways to save time. Uh, also, endlessly running through your to-do list uh, in your head over and over again to make sure that you haven't forgotten anything. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm actually going to move this just a second because it is, and I'm too close to y'all. Yeah, so it makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> no, you're fine. There's also a 2003 study uh, that was, that's kind of some of the foundation of this whole small little sliver of the counseling world. But a 2003 study looked into just the traits of type A personalities to see if those traits led to uh, the risk of a higher blood pressure in those people. So they're kind of trying to see if those of us who are type A personalities are going to die faster. Like, that's what they were trying to figure out. But what they found out was something else that was really interesting. Uh, they looked at five traits in more than 3,000 adults, uh, ages 18 to 30. They actually spent 15 years doing this study, so it didn't come out until 2018. And they looked, these were the five traits that they looked at. One was time urgency, one was competitiveness, one was hostility, one was anxiety, one was depression. And they tracked it among these 3,000 type A, you know, people uh, for 15 years. And at the end of it, they, find, they found out that there was only 15% of those participants, you know, type A people. This is good news for type A people. Only 15% of them showed higher signs of hypertension or high blood pressure than everyone else. But this is what was fascinating. The authors said that competitiveness was not one of the key factors in those 15%. Anxiety wasn't a key factor in those 15%, and neither was depression. And now those are three things that we just know, like cause uh, high blood pressure. And then also known risk factors of those 15%, it didn't include, they weren't like lack of exercise people, uh, they weren't uh, high alcohol users, they weren't obese, uh, so none of those things seemed to affect those 15%. What did appear to increase the risk of high blood pressure in those type A personalities was two things, time urgency and impatience. The ruthless enemy of hurry and rushing. Now, psychologists, neuroscientists, you know, medical professionals, they can look into this whole thing and they can develop therapies for it and they're trying to, uh, but hurry is really a symptom of something much deeper core into our hearts. Uh, there was a, a professor, Peter Kreeft, uh, he's really great, uh, professor of philosophy at Boston College. At the men's retreat, we talked a lot about Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. He is like one of the preeminent writers uh, on the philosophies and the life of Tolkien and Lewis. So 
Like he has this one book about going into Narnia, and it's all about the philosophy of it. Some of you would really geek out on. Yeah, I see you pulling out the phone. <laughs> Good job. This is what he said. He said, if you take time to do nothing, you're a slave to doing. Doing nothing is a radical, revolutionary act. But it frees you from the universal slavery of our age, slavery to the clock. This is why he says, the clock measures doing, not being. What does the clock measure? It measures doing, not being. And so I talked a lot, so now I'm going to pause. What causes you, when you hurry, you know, so maybe you're not now in a season of hurry. Some of y'all are not in that 15%. But what causes you to hurry when you hurry? Why do you hurry? Screaming children, you're running to them, or what? Away from them. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. What else causes you to hurry? Yeah, Moses. If I don't get it done now, it's never going to get done at all. Yeah, it has to get done now to get done, period. Yeah. What else causes you to hurry when you hurry? Yeah. Your days are numbered. Yeah, so you're like, there's a limitation. Yeah, that's good. I have an unrealistic expectation of how long it's going to take my children to get ready. <laughs> you have an unrealistic expectation of how long it will take your children to get ready. That was really good. You put that on a little crocheted thing somewhere. That's good. Every day. Every day. <laughs> yeah. Every day I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's great. Last week, I realized I have an unrealistic expectation about how fast Truman can cross the road. <laughs> it became a little life and death for a second. Uh, anything else? Why do you hurry when you hurry? To get so much done and accomplish so much today. Mm-hmm. It's so awesome. Yeah, accomplishing a lot makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah, totally. It kind of covers up, you know, the hurry can cover up those feelings of what if I'm not good? Yeah. Yeah, go for it, Matt. I wasted time earlier, now I have to make up for it. Yeah, Eugene Peterson actually says that hurry is a symptom of laziness because you're letting other things dictate to you your life. Yeah, and it takes work to be not hurried. Yeah. Yeah, so you're just, what's next, what's next, what's next? Yeah, totally. Yeah, anybody else? Wow. <laughs> That's great. That's gr I could love more people if I love them quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm searching for appropriate things to say in response, but yeah, I get it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, yeah, that's like a Mother's Day thing. You're, you're so fast loving everybody that you can't love me or something, yeah, go for it. Yeah, you're, yeah, when the bank balance goes down, you're like, well, if I hustle more, if I hurry, time is money, all of that, yeah. I do think that it is... Uh, almost like a slavery issue, as you know, this philosophy professor said. 
Uh, I don't know, also, as I think about it, and I think about the hurriedness, uh, when we're like, there's not enough time, there's not enough place, I've got to make sure something happens. I don't know if you can kind of stop that whole cycle, or I imagine, you know, like the hamster on the wheel. I don't, we always think, well, I can slow down while I'm on the hamster wheel, right? Like, I'm going to make an adjustment, and suddenly it'll change. But I don't think you can make those adjustments while you're in it. You kind of have to leave the hamster wheel altogether. You have to gain perspective and then re-engage in life after having a new perspective. Uh, how can you then, you know, I, I have this image of us as a church kind of being double agents in this city, you know, like secret agents behind enemy lines, living a life at rest in a world of exhaustion. Like, what if we were those kinds of subversive double agents? Uh, I believe that we have to actively not just resist hurry, but also receive God's word that gets us out of hurry. Uh, that, that God's word that declares over us our identity as his beloved children. Uh, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is today's feast, uh, is what that's all about, about leaving the hamster wheel, about getting perspective, about seeing, about engaging in an unhurried life in a world that is constantly busy. Uh, the, the last festival, it's this one, it's ordained by God. Uh, it's all about this kind of celebration. It comes five days after the atonement. So if you remember before the men's retreat, we're talking about atonement, which is this big, bloody, solemn, lamentable festival. And then five days later, they start this intentionally restful feast. Uh, when all is restored, God commands them to do in these things for seven days. It's a, it's a rest uh, enjoyment thing. There's three big elements to it. One is enjoying sweet fruits of the harvest and rejoicing. One is uh, living in simple tents or tabernacles. And then the last one is to remembering God's story, his redemption through the desert life that they had once. Uh, I think that this practice, while I'm not about to say, hey, we should all build some tents today, I think it has some timeless wisdom for our issue of time-hurried sickness. And so I'll read for, for us Leviticus chapter 23, verses 39 to 44. And so it says this, uh, Beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to make branches from luxuriant trees, from palms and willows and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in the temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I, have, that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Moses announced to the Israelites these appointed festivals of the Lord. This is God's word. Uh, the, the first discipline to get out of a hurried life is the discipline of remembering. Uh, it says here in verse 43 that they're, they're to do this so that every generation might remember and might know 
that God brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, and then carried them through the wilderness and the desert when they lived in these temporary homes. Uh, This practice of remembering the times in the wilderness. Uh, The people, uh, another name for this festival is uh, Sukkot, uh, which is really a location in the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, It's just a place. Uh, Sinai is that that, uh, deserted land, uh, the wild and wasteland between Egypt and the promised land of Israel. And that's where they spent, you know, all of those decades in the desert. And so one of the reasons that they call it that is to kind of remember those days in the wilderness where they were very hungry, uh, the time of wandering, uh, the time also of provision in incredibly dry land. Uh, the time uh, when they were in the wilderness was a season where there are very few signs of good things coming. You know, like the most optimistic person out there in the desert can it be like, yeah, but... Over this hill, there were no signs for like, hey, but could we see these good things happening? They could just kind of sit there and be like, I guess this is it. It was a time of them being essentially lost in the desert. Uh, There's some very funny maps about how they moved around, really seemingly going nowhere. But this is a festival of remembering that time. Uh, It was a time of rebelliousness where they like hated God. They complained against God. They were desperate people. Uh, seemingly on this dead-end journey. They kept wanting to return uh, to their abusers, like that kind of season of life, where you're like, oh, I just want to go back to that thing that was really terrible, because at least then I got, you know, a paycheck, or at least then I had a sense of significance. Uh, They kept wanting to worship things that they knew firsthand that they made up. That is the wilderness, the Sukkot time. A season of unknown, tired, exhaustion. But all the while, through that season, God's keeping them afloat. And that's what God is telling them. Remember, when you were living in all this temporary stuff, and I kept you afloat. Bread from heaven, water from rocks. How he provided everything that they needed, he sustained them. And in that season, they were completely, like wholly, dependent on God. Because of all of the factors I just said, All they could do was depend on him, completely dependent like a little child that comes out and is like, can't do anything on their own. That was the place that they were in for 40 years. See, against Pharaoh, God had redeemed them. That's exciting, you know, some cloud of death going through the city, but redeeming them. At the Red Sea, God opened a path for new life for them. That's exciting. And then he defeated all their enemies and they sat there on the shores and they shouted and that was exciting. But then in the desert, they had to depend on God just for daily life. Not a high point, not an exciting thing, just depending completely on God in the daily life. And watch God show up every mealtime, every time they were thirsty, just their basic fundamental needs. And maybe you know those kinds of seasons, you know, where you're paycheck to paycheck and you just need God Uh, Or when you don't have any direction in your life, you don't know where you're going or where you're headed, but you have to like depend and ask questions and be needy, Uh, where you don't have any leads in life, Uh, you don't know where uh, you're going, you keep returning to the bad abusive relationships you had before, where you're full of temptation, where you feel incredibly weak, where you're tired, where you're needy, and where all you have to do is be dependent, not because you're choosing to be dependent, but because there's no other choice but then to be dependent on other people. 
Maybe you know of those seasons. I often think that uh, while your reasons were good, I think my reasons for hurry are better. I often think that we give ourselves to hurry and rushing from one thing to the next because we are terrified of returning to a season like that. The wor our worst nightmare is to be a person dependent again. We want to have all of that in the rearview mirror. We want to be able to tell our stories in such a way where it was like, yeah, I graduated from college, it was really hard, we didn't have money. Yeah, that big recession thing and 9-11, that really screwed me up. But that's in the past, baby. I'm like moving on forward. And we're terrified of having to return to some kind of time of daily dependence on God. And as you kind of strive forward in your hurry and in your independence, uh, you forget things and you begin to believe new things. You tell yourself a new story. You tell yourself the story of like, I pulled myself out of that pit. I worked hard and I earned it and I got to where I am today. Or I cleaned my life up. I was really struggling and now I'm all clean and good to go. Uh, I gave myself and my family all of these advantages because I worked so hard. And you begin to believe that story backwards. You believe a hurried story backwards. You say things like or believe things like, if I don't do everything right today, I'm going to end up in that pit again. And so you hurry. As fast as you can, you hurry. But this is a festival, this festival uh, of booths or tabernacles is about resistance to independence. And how does it resist that kind of independence? By reminding each other constantly, once a year for seven days, there's hardly anything that we do for seven days anymore except for cruises in Alaska, but here they did seven days, they stopped and they paused and they sat in these tents and they remembered God carries us through the desert. We are dependent people. We're still dependent today. Uh, by the time of the New Testament, the Jewish people had developed additional rituals for this festival. Uh, one of the big highlights was to read uh, the section of Psalms, the Egyptian Hillel, which is Psalm 113 to 118. And it's all about the story of God carrying them through the wilderness. Uh, and so I want to read just Psalm 116, a little bit of it for you, is because this is the work that they were doing in remembering. It says this, it says, I love the Lord. They're telling their story. I love the Lord for he heard my voice and he heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. I mean, that's dependence. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, and that Lord saved me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unweary, and he has brought the low. Uh, for I, when I was brought low, he saved me. And he says, when return to your rest, my soul. For the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Why, that I might walk before the Lord in the land of the living. How do you resist the ruthless temptress of hurry? You remember the true story of what God has actually done for you. 
You look back, and it brings you to the present, and you remember what God is like, what he's done. He's the one who hears my cry. He's the one who actually rescued. I didn't pull myself out of a pit. He carried me. He responds to my voice. He took me from that bondage, and he has saved me, and now my soul gets to be at rest. How do you get out of it? You have this, they, they move out of the hurried life. They have this festival. They take time to remember it, to tell their story, to sing their story, to live it. You know? um, this is just a side note, since I don't do a Father's Day or Mother's Day sermon. Here's my side note Father's Day moment, okay? One of the primary roles of a father in a family. And so this is for if you're a father or if you're just trying to figure out your father wounds or why your father was good or bad. One of the primary roles of a father in a family is to tell the narrative of God's provision and redemption through the family's shared life. One of the primary roles of a father is to sit down and to remind and to tell the story for the whole family. This is how God has redeemed and cared for us in our shared life together. To repeatedly say, like, this is one of the primary things you can do as a father. Like, you want to be a good father, it's not about showing up to soccer practice and, like, getting good grades or, like, getting the income up. Being a good father is to repeatedly say, the Lord has provided for us. Our culture wants to tell you that a father's job is to live in such a way that your children will one day say, when they're all grown up, the goal of fatherhood is so that when you're in it, you know, the adult children can come around and they can say, my dad provided everything we ever needed. Like, that's what you're told your job is as a father. But not so. One of the chief aims of a father is to live in such a way and to share the story with their kids in such a way that when your kids are grown-ups, they sit around and they say, my dad depended on God for everything. God was so good to my family. That's a good father. If you can grow up and you can see your kids grow up and at the end of their lives they say, what I learned from my dad is that God provides for us. That's what this festival is about. As someone leading the, you know, this church, uh, I want to remind us of our story. Maybe be like a good father. That's why you know, the Catholics call the priest father. You don't have to do that. <laughs> but, he, uh, but if I could, I want to remind us of our story. Uh, we were once wandering this world like zombies, tossed in every direction, exhausted by trying to prove ourselves, exhausted by trying to pretend, exhausted from performing all the time. We were dead in sins with no way out. But God, he rescued you. He rescued us. Why? Because he was so consumed with love and mercy for us. He opened a door for us. He rushed in. He came after each of us. He brought us into this family by his death, by his resurrection, and now we get to sit and we say, oh, we're the family of God. Like, that's your story. That's our story. And so now we sit here, and then we also walk in life, and we do other things besides sitting here, but now we sit here as daughters and as sons, adopted children of the creator of all things. Our souls are full with an unwavering, un a dim diminishing inheritance. We're recipients now of every spiritual blessing. There's nothing of heaven that God is withholding, like nothing. 
were the envy of the angels in heaven themselves. That's what the authors of the New Peter and the writer of Hebrews, they're all talking about. Everybody in heaven's envious of what we've been re- like received. The angels are like, wow, that's a cool thing. We are the beloved ones of God. And he's called us together in this moment. Why? To be an out- outpost or secret agents of a kingdom that is here and a kingdom that's coming to display God's abundant affection now, today, and he's given all of us everything that we need to do that thing. That's your story. That's my story. God has saved you. This is the Lord your God. Why do we do even gatherings and all of the activities? So that we might return and remember every week and every season and that every generation, children after children, would know who the Lord is in the times of the desert. Second discipline. I promise the, other, the others aren't as long. Second discipline to push back against hurry is the discipline of feasting on sweets. Uh, the festival isn't just about remembering the past. It's also about tasting the goodness today. This was uh, the, the other word for this festival is the festival of the gathering or the picking of the fruits. It's when they would go out and, you know, we talked about the grain and the barley pretty boring, grain and barley. You know, those are flyover states. Some of y'all are from them. This is more about like those pictures of, uh, sorry, the only people laughing are the people from the coasts. I apologize to you grain growing people. Yeah. The harvest of the fruits are more like the land of California, or maybe even from long ago. The the festival of the grapes getting crushed into wine. Like this is the season of harvesting the grapes, of the olives to be pressed into olive oil, the pulling down of pomegranates and every citrus fruit. And so they would be gathering together the stuff that tastes good and the stuff that they would consume and they would preserve so that things would like be delicious from then on. But everybody knows that like the first, like a, a fresh peach or a fresh grape tastes way better than the frozen ones two or three weeks later, right? Like, that's the joy of gardening. It is not cost-effective. It's just taste-effective. So all the orchards were harvested. The trees were then bare because all the fruit had been pulled from them. And what did they do? They gathered together and they rejoiced. And they were like, look, like, this is, not only does God sustain us, not only did God sustain us in the desert, He sweetens the pot, like literally, this is good. God is still at it to this day, adding flavor on top of flavor, goodness on top of goodness. Following God is sweet. It's good. And so they would rejoice. Uh, One of the psalms that they would sing uh, in that same section, uh, Psalm 113, says this. It says, praise the Lord, you servants. Praise the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. He raises the poor, this is verse 7, from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. And he seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. Now I think what's telling there is that they're singing the song about how, not just that God pulls people out of the dust, pulls people out of the mud in this beautiful figurative language. But then he seats them with princes. He seats them in royal uh, 
festival rooms, the banquet hall of the kings and the queens, that's where you get seated. And I have just like this hunch about why are Christians so hurried. Uh, Again, my reasons are better than the ones that y'all gave, though the screaming child's a good one. One of the reasons we hurry as Christians is that we think fundamentally that the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, brings us to zero. And then it's up to us to make good, to create upgrades, to make a difference. It's up to us to add to the life. We've been saved, you know, like we were in the pit, now we're on level ground, and now it's up to us to figure out some of these core things like belonging and what's next. So we hurry from the one thing to the next. Uh, we think that we're like convicts that have been given a pardon, uh, and that we leave that captivity, and we're like, now I need to take advantage of my second chance. Like that's we, I think that's one of the diminished parts of the way that we preach the gospel, is that's what we believe. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that in Christ, you've actually received everything. Yeah, your record is expunged, your pardon has come in, and you walk not into a second chance. You're not raised into a second chance life. You are raised into an abundant life with him. An abundant life that's already been prepared, that's already been created since the foundations of the world for you to walk in. The same preparation that God did to come, to die, to rise again, and to start this movement that would bring you into redemption, that same foreknowledge and preparation that God did is also for your abundant life after you first believe. Like that is the the whole package. You've been brought into a free, abundant life. So how do you resist the temptation of hurry? Taste and see God's goodness. Taste and see how it is being piled on to you. His grace, his mercy, his presence, it is just being heaped onto you in this present life. Not just in the desert. Not just in the trials. This present life. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, you've been raised to a living hope. Another fatherhood side note, this is my last one, is that as a father, the the other primary thing that you're called to do is to show your children that following God is good. That that following him and, and experiencing a life with Jesus is good. Not slave labor, not hardened time, Uh, Not like I'm working for my pension, but following God is as good as drinking fresh wine. It's as good as eating an orange as it comes off the tree. It is that good. So practice the discipline of tasting and sweetness, uh, the sweetness of God. Uh, The last discipline is the discipline of simplicity or of retreat. Fundamentally, this festival is about camping. And I know we have some non-campers here, squarely in the non-camping train, right there. There you go. You know, just got to name it and own it. That's the quickest part, right? But this is really about getting out of the ordinary. They left behind their luxuries, uh, their organization that you have in your home, in your place. 
They left the hustle and the bustle of their normal lives to go and camp, uh, to slow down, to remember God is their dwelling place. Uh, When it says that the festival is called the Festival of Tabernacles, uh, yes, it's like the tent, but the reason that the the big tent uh, that we call the tabernacle where all the religious practices were done at the time, it's called tabernacle because it literally means the dwelling place. It's like, oh, that's where God dwells. God is our dwelling place. Repeated throughout the Psalms over and over again is this phrase that the Lord, Yahweh, the one that rescued us, he is himself our dwelling place, where we rest. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, they kept using that language over and over again. You know, we could be in a cave. We could be in a desert. We could be in a war about to face a battle. We could even be in a storm, but the Lord is my home and my place. Uh, He had tabernacled with us. He dwelled with us, and he is with us in all of these things. Even when they were plucked from their land, taken to a strange other place, they were able to say, even in those psalms of exile, the Lord is my dwelling place. And so to remember that, they physically left their lives and embraced an eight-day Sabbath of simplicity, of connection with one another, of constant like renewal. Uh, and that happens for them through the tent building, but really it could happen for anybody just getting out of where you are to gain perspective, to leave the hamster wheel. That's why we as a church love retreats. Like, why do we go on these retreats, these men's retreats, these women's retreats, these MC retreats? We as elders have retreats. We've had missional community leader retreats. Like, why do we schedule our calendar like that and then even, like, give money to these different endeavors? Why? Because we have to, to remember and have perspective. Uh, Dallas Willard, who was a USC uh, professor before he died in philosophy as well, he said this, if we don't come apart for a while, if we don't come apart from the world for a while, we will come apart after a while. Essentially meaning if you do not get away for just a while, you will come apart just through the the hustle and bustle. Uh, One of my biggest pet peeves as a pastor, so this is what I don't like about you guys. You ready for it? I'm I'm being funny. I'm sorry. (laughs) Mirala looked at me like it was horrifying. No, it's what I don't like about us, and I'll include myself in it. We come back from vacations having lived a busy life just somewhere else, uh, exhausted, not recharged. We don't come back declaring, oh my gosh, I remembered the function of God in my life. We come back complaining about the last Uber drive that we had and the way that the food didn't live up to our expectations and those sorts. Or we come back just like, exhausted like we're, we just did a tour in Vietnam. Like, that's how we come back from vacations. And I do, I, I want us to take vacations. But I do have some questions for us to ask so that we might have an intentional time like they had here where we actually get away and we find out and we rediscover the Lord is my dwelling place. He is my home. So here are five questions to ask yourself. Uh, as you're planning your vacation next week, or maybe you already have it. I go on vacation tomorrow, so these are my thoughts. I'm going to do it right. Uh, No. He says, well, the first question to ask is, where can we be at rest? 
you try to make your schedule and you try to dream, where can we be at rest and actually practice Sabbath, where we play, where we delight, where we, where we functionally rest? If, is that part of your calculation when you're choosing your vacation? How will I be at rest? Another question is, how can I unplug? Uh, the practice of simplicity. How can you uh, be uh, doing less, experiencing less, or are you packing up your car full of tons and tons of things so that you can have your complex life here, but over there also? How can you practice simplicity? Uh, where can you go where you can disentangle your life uh, from, the, from this pace, this current pace? How can things change? Um, what can you do to disentangle yourself from this pace and change up your routines and your life? Uh, a big question, these last two are the, the most important, but the other one is how will we connect with one another? When you go on vacation as a family, how will you do the spiritual practice of relating to another person? Not accomplishing photo ops or meals or activities, but the primary thing, how will we relate to one another as human beings? Not on the clock, but just measuring at the end, how did we know one another? And then the last question is, how will we remember God and taste his goodness? Um, how will we practice spiritual renewal for ourselves? Uh, that, that my hope and my prayer would be that as we, as a church, take vacations, we would think in our heads, primarily, how am I going to know God and remember his story and listen to him speak to me, listen to his voice? How will I read and rejoice? How will I be known by God on this vacation? I mean, it's radical. I get it. But those are the five questions I, just, I, I plead with us all to ask and then to answer in all of our planning. Because if we're going to do it, like, we should take vacation. We, this is a festival that says leave your house for seven days and, and change the setting to remember God. Let's do that. And it could be on a cruise. It could be in Paris. It could be in Cancun. Like, it could also be in Riverside, you know. But do it. Uh, but this is, uh, that's what vacations could be like. This is, uh, just to kind of wrap up, one of those festivals that G Jesus experienced himself. I mean, he experienced them all, but we see how he experienced it uh, in the scriptures, in the gospels. Uh, in his day, the feast would be concluded with this elaborate water-pouring ceremony. So as you can imagine, this was a rich, their story of like Moses and everything was a rich part of their whole life. And so they built this amazing fountain that just celebrated how God uh, brought water from the rocks and it was life. And it, like, it was like refreshed them. It was their sustaining thing. And so the last day of this festival would be around this a fountain that they had built where they would be, you know, pouring water as a kind of this cleansing ceremony, and they would also remember some of the really core prophetic passages uh, from the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah about how God would bring life from water again. Uh, one of those passages is Isaiah 12, uh, where it says this, it says, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. 
the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. Why? Because he has become my salvation. And then it says, uh, the prophet says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so they would do this ceremony in the last day, and they would kind of hope and long for a salvation that they would be able to drink deeply from, that would clothe them, water from rocks, a deeply satisfied uh, life with God, a, a salvation from God. Jesus goes to that same fountain. He stands within it on the last day, and he puts his arms out, not for people to put water on him, but he yells out really loud, come all who are thirsty and drink. That's his big appeal. And he's calling them to come and see him. I'm the rock. Come find life from me. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who are parched in their souls, come and drink. I'll give you life forever. Come and drink. It's a pretty uh, intense proclamation that he gives, and it doesn't help him in his political futures, right? But it is the profound thing that he says, water out of rocks, bounty, abundant, it can come from me, more than you could ask, think, or imagine. And that's what happens with Jesus. On Easter morning, several months later, there's that thrill of hope, but it's an unhurried movement that starts on Easter weekend of God making abundant life out of a stone-covered tomb, life from the rocks, living life, living water from the rocks. And so I ask you to come and drink deeply, come and feast whether you vacation well, whether you hurry and rush around. Jesus doesn't make proclamations to people about how bad they're doing at vacation. He simply says, come and let me satisfy. And so I ask you, come and drink. Come and feast on the abundant life that can only be found in Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, uh, we praise you for your life, for your goodness, that we can only find in you. I thank you for being the, the father who reminds us of our story. Thank you for being uh, the path towards life through your empty tomb. I pray that you would uh, raise us to a life that isn't filled with urgency.